Hello, my beautiful peace lovers and peacemakers. Welcome to Peace Mindedly. Today is the last Tuesday of April. We are live streaming our show on YouTube and very welcome to our show. So there are a few changes that's happening in our show. Later next week, we're going to explain all of those. But for now, we are super excited for today's show. For the purpose of this show, please find this video on YouTube Peace Talk with Sarah. Today, we are talking about peace building and the effort to create a sustainable community after war, a sustainable community after war. The front lines of peace and insider's guide to changing the world is an important book by Severin Atesere. I'm particularly very interested in this book because Severin covers the, an issue that I, I, care, I care about tremendously. I am very much interested to observe and review how communities and societies really get back on their feet after war and dealing with lots of war and casualties within their societies after a very long lasting wars. So when war happens, the infrastructure of a society really destroys buildings, bridges, schools, and most importantly, people vanish. The given society at wars uh, deal with a tremendous hardship and pain, yet their life must, must be celebrated for those who survive. It is when peace and keeping violence down becomes a necessity, absolute necessity. I'm talking from an experience. For today's show, we will talk about how people in different communities keep peace up and violence down. Sabrine Atesere is an award-winning author, peace builder, researcher, and professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. Sabrine has written other books, including Peace Land and The Trouble with the Congo. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is a nation that we have already discussed earlier on Peace Mindedly. On September of last year, we talked with Emmanuel Netibou Bonera, founder of Netibonera Foundation and author of Congo So How Once a Barefoot Refugee Delivered Hope, Faith, and 20,000 Pairs of Shoes. The issues that we are going to discuss here with Severin is basically the personal story of Emmanuel and what happened to him and his family back in Congo. I had a fascinating conversation with Emmanuel. I'm sure that I'm going to have a fascinating conversation with Severin today. So, we are going to discuss uh, her book, The Front Line of Peace. So I do have the book here with me. I mean, if the people can can see the book, I, I just, you know, I was just so enamored and so fascinated by, by the cover. So here we have a pencil with an eraser at the bottom, and then we have a drawing of a of a gun, gun machine, a gun machine. And then the eraser basically has erased parts of this gun. I love to learn more about the cover. 
Okay, uh, thank you so much. Because can I tell you my favorite story from the book, which is yes, yes. the story that inspired the cover artist who designed the cover. Um, so it's a story that takes place in Congo, uh, and it starts. You know that Congo. You've you've talked with Emmanuel, so you know that Congo is the stage of one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II. And uh, the story starts in 2007. In 2007, a little boy named Luca was kidnapped and forced to work for an art group. And Luca was so small at the time that he couldn't even hold a rifle. So his commanders would march him up front and they would use him as a human shield. And somehow Luca survived. And after three years with the armed groups, his commanders released him and they sent him back home to his mother. Justin. But Luca had trouble assimilating. He hated school. He was often hungry because his mom didn't have much money. And he still believed what his commanders had drilled into him, uh, that the only way to survive uh, was to use violence. And meanwhile, in the United States, there was a young Indian-American woman named Vijaya Thakur who was working for various aid organizations focused on Congo. And Pichaya was growing very uncomfortable with her work because her colleagues used the traditional top-down approach to peace building. They relied on outsider skills and expertise. And as a result, they ended up harming the very people they wanted to help. So for instance, um, they believed that violence in Congo was due to the illegal exploitation of natural resources. Uh, like coltan. And so they spend their time and efforts focusing and advocating for new laws on conflict minerals. But the new legislations cost many vulnerable people their jobs, and these people had to join armed groups in order to survive. And so Vijaya, when she started, when she was traveling to Congo, she started asking ordinary citizens what they believed would lead to peace. And eventually, she decided to try something in, in the village where Justin and Luca were living. And she, uh, she, she used a program and an approach that's completely different from, from the usual top-down, foreign-led approach to peace building. And uh, she managed to make really, really big differences in the lives of the villagers like Justin and Luca. And so at a point, Vijaya was talking with Justine, and Justine kept using the word success to refer to the whole initiative. And it was because Luca had turned 13, and for the first time in his life, he was speaking in the future tense. Uh, he had stopped running away all the time. He was making plans, peaceful plans within his community. And then Justin said, my son now wants to hold a pencil instead of a gun. Excellent. Wow. And that, that story inspired you to, to basically have this, this image in your mind. Yeah, it's, it's very powerful. Well, it inspired the cover artist. Uh, Rachel is the person, uh, Rachel Perkins, who designed the cover. And she's done, I, I love the cover of the book. I think it's very impactful. Uh, so she's done a wonderful job. And yes, she read this story because I, say, I tell it in the opening chapter of the book. She read the story and that's how she designed the cover. Mm -hmm. Excellent. 
we do have many stories throughout the book explaining yes. basically what's happening. One of the stories that was very, I paid attention to and was very intriguing was your explanation of Ijwi, Ijwi Island. So mm -hmm. we know that um, Congo has been in war and not, not only Congo, Rwanda and other nations, Colombia, and even the United States, you, you've just uh, observed and researched many of these societies. But I would like to, I would like to know what did you find in Ijwi that was unique and, and different? So Ijwi is quite literally a heaven of peace in Congo. So as, as we were saying, for the past 25 years, one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II has reached around Ijwi. And despite the presence of one of the largest and most expensive peacekeeping mission in the world, several million people have died and hundreds continue to die every day. But Ijwi itself has avoided mass violence. And the island is absolutely stunningly beautiful. Uh, I have a, a couple of photos of the island in the book and, and I, I have a, a lot more photos uh, on my Instagram account and, and on my webpage. Uh, but what makes each we even more noteworthy and, and the piece even more fascinating is that each we island contains all of the same preconditions for violence that have fueled generalized fighting in other parts of Congo. So you have a geostrategic location, mineral resources, ethnic tensions, lack of state authority, extreme poverty, uh, local conflict over land and traditional power. And what's absolutely fascinating about Ijwi is that the island is peaceful thanks to the active everyday involvements of all of its citizens, including the poorest and least powerful ones. Mm -hmm. So it's not the police or the state or the army who manage to control tensions, and, and it's not foreign peace builders either. It is the members of the community themselves. Mm -hmm. And they do that by fostering what they call a culture of peace. They also organize in grassroots associations and local structures that help resolve conflict. And, and, they, and they build on very strong beliefs that, uh, that help deter violence by both insiders and outsiders, um, mm -hmm. like, like blood pass. Blood, yes. blood facts, uh, sure. blood facts, you know, are traditional yes. promises between two parties who say we'll never hurt each other. Absolutely. So at least in my opinion, when I cover war, I mean, at least societies that survive war, in my opinion, I do see that women are very, very involved in mm -hmm. peace building and peacemaking. So how did you see women in your, uh, in your research? Yes, of course. Of course, women are very involved in grassroots efforts. They're not very much involved in elite, you know, government levels, uh, effort, national negotiations, international negotiations, because there is a huge barrier to entry. Women are very uh, discriminated against in terms of access to these high level positions. But when you look at grassroots efforts, at the everyday efforts ongoing on the ground, uh, women are just as active and, and some time even more active than men. Mm. Yes, I can see that. I wonder what happened, why you got interested in Congo in particular? Okay, well, so you have to know that I was born and raised in France. 
in Paris. And and I'm saying that because I think that in in France or in Europe we have a kind of cultural affinity with Africa, just like here in the United States, you have some kind of cultural affinity with Latin America. What I mean is that growing up, Africa was very much part of my my mental world. I had uh, friends, a lot of friends who were people of African descent. Uh, I learned about Africa at school, especially in high school. Um, And your dad. And my dad, yes. My, my dad worked, worked all over the world. My dad worked all over the world, but he did spend quite a little bit of time in Africa. So he told me a lot of stories about his work in Africa. Um, and, you know, I, I had artworks at home that came from Africa, uh, music. I mean, you know, it was really part of my of my world, uh, my mental world. And, and, then, uh, and then the reason why Congo itself, I, I think it's just life you know life happens sometimes i was uh working for well, long story short i was working for doctors without borders i went on vacation in spain uh i went to a new year's party with my husband uh and we were uh with his colleagues from doctors without borders and then at a point they were like oh okay we're looking for uh two people to uh go to congo and try to see if there is something that msf doctors without borders could do in congo and that was at the very peak of the war in congo in early 2000 uh no early 2001 and uh you know it was a new year party my husband and i were like in the spirit of the party we didn't think we were like yes let's go uh, so we went <laughs> and and I spent six months in Congo in uh, in early 2001 and, and I loved the country. I loved the culture. I loved the people, the food, the art, the way of life, the, the weather, the beauty. Uh, and, and at the same time, I, I thought that we, it was a really interesting and important place to study because Again, you know, it's it was on its way at the time to becoming one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II. Again, millions of people had already died. There were babies who were raped, grandmothers who were raped. Uh, still today, you have hundreds of rebel groups that are still active. It's still one of the largest ongoing humanitarian emergency in the world, one of the poorest countries in the world. So very important that we understand what's going on in this country but when I was there the very first time in 2001, I, I thought that we didn't really understand what was going on. There was virtually no research on Congo, just a little bit by Western academics, mostly historians. Uh, Congolese academics were actually involved in politics at the time. One of them was, <laughs> was the leader of a rebel group. And, uh, and basically, like all, all of the activists and the policymakers, I felt that we didn't understand what was going on. We could never understand why certain how, people were fighting other people. How did you communicate? What language did you did you use? So I use French because French okay. is the vehicular language in Congo. It's a mm-hmm. it's a language spoken by the elite. I tried mm-hmm. to learn Swahili. Uh, that was a disaster. But I I, <laughs> I I tried to learn Swahili, and and there are many different local languages. So when I when people didn't speak French or didn't speak French well enough, uh, I would uh, work with a translator as well. And I had mm-hmm. a lot of local colleagues who spoke mm-hmm. the local languages, and and yes. they helped me communicate. 
According to my very limited information about Congo, I know that the country has really inherited many of the violence from uh, the one of the kings, European kings, Belgian kings. I forgot his Leopold. name. Yeah, Leopold. Yes, Leopold too, exactly. And then basically they they were just uh, imposed many of the ex horrible, horrible experiences that people do, ex do experience and live by within the society has inherited by the colonial system. Like, I mean, um, child soldier raping, uh, sending the kids back to the village to rape the family members. So then they became so ashamed of coming back to the village. There were so many things, so many horrible issues. And then I'm thinking how people would receive you. Wouldn't they think that, oh, she is European and we do not want to have anything to do with her? What was your interaction with the people within the societies? It it really depends. Uh, I think it it really depends whether I was in a country where I spoke the language or not. Mm -hmm. it, it makes a huge difference, obviously, if you speak the language. It also depends how long you stay in the country. And that's one of the things I, I, I explain in the book when I say, well, you know, if you spend a lot of time, if you spend several years in a country, you're going to have time to learn the local languages. You're going to have time to develop very strong network, local network. You're going to have time to understand the culture, to not make mistakes, cultural mistakes, which I, I still do in, in many countries, even here in the United States, and I've been living here for 20 years. Uh, so, so there is a, a lot of differences depending on how also how you present yourself. If you arrive as a typical peace builder, international peace builder, and you say, I know what your problem is. I'm going to resolve the problem for you. And I'm, I'm here to bring the solutions to your problem. Or uh, if you arrive and you say, hey, I'm here to learn from you and I'm here to listen and I'm here to support you and to make sure that you lead the peace efforts. So it really depended on the country, on the situation and on my own attitude and, and my own behavior on the ground. What is the biggest lesson you learned in your research in, in Congo, let's say in Congo? Uh, well, I can tell you the biggest research I learned in my research in general, uh -huh, which yes. is that we, we really have to change the way we, we build peace and, and we approach peace building both at home in the United States or wherever uh, people who are watching us are based, whether they're in Europe, in North America, in Latin America, you know, wherever in the world, or whether we're talking about war zones. Because uh, the way we usually feel peace in war zones is really wrong. Uh, there are huge problems with our common approach to building peace. Uh, and I'm happy to talk more about that if, if you want. But the, the short story is that the result is that we often fail at building peace and therefore violence continues in many places at home and abroad. And you just have to look at the statistics. More than one and a half billion people still live under the threat of violence and you have still more than 50 active conflict zones around the world, 50 countries where you have active conflict zones around the world. So that's the first thing. Our common approach doesn't work. And the good thing and the, and the thing that's really the central message of, of the front lines of peace is that there is a much better way to go about building peace. 
And that's what I tell in the book. The stories I tell in the book are all success stories. And I found success stories everywhere. So in Congo, we've talked about Italy, but I, I have 12 different conflict zones that I analyze in, in the book and, and on, on, in which I've worked on as an activist and as a researcher. Uh, and I found uh, pockets of peace, success stories, even, like, even in Afghanistan, even in Israel and the Palestinian territories, uh, Colombia, Somalia. Uh, so basically, that's, that's the second big lesson is that, uh, that there is hope. Uh, and The Front Lines of Peace is really a book about hope. It's a book, you, you remember the subtitle? The subtitle is An Insider's Guide to Changing the World. Well, the insiders, it's us. It's, it's you in your community. It's me in my community. It's everybody who's watching us in their community. And so that, that leads to the third big lesson, which is that all of us, we can really build peace. All of us, we can change the world. We are the insiders who can change the world. And if we follow the role models that I portray in the book, we can make a huge difference in our communities. Important, very important, very important discussion. And what you said was very important. So here's a few things. First of all, I loved the book for two well, for one main reason and that one main reason is you know Martina and I we read lots of books like books from scholars books from activists books from so many this book is from a first person point of view so not only analyzes and evaluates societies and what's going on and so forth but also you know from it's from a point of view of, of a person who is living through and who is watching everything and trying to fill in the gap of what we do not understand. So in that regard, I think it's very important. And also, uh, as you said, insiders, I, I do believe that we are a bit humble here of saying that we are all insiders. You are the insider of uh, those soci societies that you researched and uh, you know nuts and bolts and criterias. But I love the idea that, yes, we are insiders and we can we, we can create change. We can create change for peace and for betterment of our life and the life of others. Very fascinating. So please stay put with me. You are watching Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring the finest peaceful bridge makers. You can find this episode and many other programs on goldtoon.com, our website of peace journalism storytelling. Next week, we are talking with Yusra Imran, author of Hijab and Red Lipstick. On Thursday, we will send information about our conversation with Yusra via email. So if you would like to know what's going on with us and understand about our programs, understand about peace and, and the differences that we are trying to create within our society, please do sign up to our newsletter. For the following Tuesday on May 11th, we will discuss the feminism look at the Quran, Muslims' holy book. We will talk with Professor Asma Barlas, author of Believing Women in Islam. Okay, bear with me. I always get this tongue twist of, of pronouncing this word. Believing Women in Islam on reading patriarchal. I did it patriarchal interpretation of the Quran. 
It's May 11 at uh, 12 noon Pacific Standard Time here on Peace Mindedly. We are planning for our next season with a few pleasant surprises. I do not want to spoil the surprises. If you would love to learn about the surprises that we are going to bring to you, you need to go to goldtone.com and sign up to our newsletter. I'm not going to spoil that. For this hour, we are talking to Sabrine Atisere, professor of political science at Columbia University and author of The Front Lines of Peace, an insider's guide to changing the world. It seems, uh, Sabrine, that honestly, no-brainer to include um, local communities, local leaders uh, within the peace process and peace building. But this is, I've seen, I know that usually when people are getting together is usually big heads or with the um, uh, European delegates and they have they ha- they don't have anything to do with the local community first why is that and and you're telling that we we can change the attitude so can you tell us one more time of how <laughs> okay uh, so it's it's basically the entire book that you're asking me to summarize. So let's start with the why is that? Um, as you say, the, the conventional way to build peace, uh, I, I call it Peace Inc., Peace Incorporated. And and it's the way that we're all familiar with, the, the way to build peace that relies on governments, on elites, on foreign peace builders, and, and that usually excludes local activists and ordinary people. And... Uh, the reason why it excludes ordinary people and local activists is that the Peace Inc. approach to building peace is based on a lot of misleading and very detrimental assumptions, such as the idea that only top-down intervention, only working with governments, with elites, with presidents, that's the only way to end violence. Uh, the, also the idea that all good things come together. So we can promote peace, gender equality, democracy, human rights, etc., as a package deal. And the most important idea uh, behind Peace Inc. is that only outsiders have the required skills and expertise to build peace. So that that's how I got isn't, into peace building. I mean, Sabrine, isn't that just plain stupid? It's not plain stupid. It's plain wrong. Ah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want me to, me to tell your story or yes, do you prefer yes. that I explain like more academic? Um, I, I, no, I, I love stories. Okay. Tell okay, me so stories. I'll, I'll tell you the story of how my own career in international aid got started because I think it really illustrates the value we place on the fa- uh, like the, it illustrates this idea that only outsiders have the required skills and expertise to build peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I was 23, I got my very first job out of graduate school as assistant country director for Médecins du Monde, uh, Doctors of the World in Kosovo. Uh, and so when I was 23 at the time, I didn't speak Albanian or Serbo-Croatian. I still don't speak Albanian or Serbo-Croatian. Uh, at the time, I had virtually no knowledge of local histories, politics, and cultures. I, I remember I actually started reading my first book about the Balkans on the flight going there. And I was going, coming from Paris, so the flight was too short, so I never finished that book. 
But I got the job because I spoke decent English. I had two very fancy master's degrees. And I had a solid training in political analysis and also some kind of experience in a few developing countries and post-war places. And so when I think about it in hindsight, 20 years later, I feel terrible when I think about my Kosovo assistant at the time. His name was Nerim. So Nerim had 20 years experience analyzing political, social, and economic issues. He had lived in Kosovo all his life. He was also much older and much wiser than I was, but I was the outsider, so I was in charge. And the thing is that I, I had never supervised anyone in my life before. <laughs> I was 23. So I, I literally had no idea what to do with him and how to deal with him. And, and eventually I found a way to keep him busy. So I asked him to compile and translate clippings from the local press. And I can still see him every morning religiously posting his work on our bulletin board and none of my colleagues ever read it. And even I often didn't have the time to, to read it. So that was such a waste of time, energy, and talent. And the thing is that I realized afterwards, as, uh, when I started studying international peace building and, and through my research, I realized that it was not a stroke of good luck for me and bad luck for Nareem, but that was a typical situation for foreign peace builders. Because most foreign peace builders assume that local people do not have what it takes to build peace, that they are incompetent, corrupt, and violent. Otherwise, they wouldn't be at war. <laughs> uh, and by contrast, outsiders believe that they have the required skills and expertise. And, and you were asking, is it like, completely stupid? I don't know if I, I said it's wrong, but I don't know if stupid because it's 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 based on how we value knowledge. Um, in their eyes, in the eyes of most peace builders, what makes a good peace builder is education and work experience in specialized topics like gender or human rights or election organizations. And Sabrine, I yeah. want to very quickly interrupt you. So yeah. we are in a very interesting crossroad here in the United mm -hmm. States. So we are dealing, we just uh, heard the George Floyd's trial and yeah. what happened with his trial. And then uh, we are right now, there are almost all of the organizations and anyone that I know, many universities, universities I know, are putting lots of effort into this idea of inclusion, diversity, equity, yeah. because they really want to uh, include other races and so forth yeah. and so on. So yes, these good things are happening and I am very happy. But here's the thing, we are still dealing with what I call the white supremacy or, or Anglo-Saxon European American attitude. So I am from Iran. I vividly remember I was covering uh, the um, uh, presidential palace. I was in front of the uh, building. I saw a very attractive, beautiful lady came to me and started asking questions. Fluent Farsi, obviously, was born in Iran. 
but I knew that she, I mean, after a few minutes of uh, talking and explaining, uh, she told me she's from University of California in Berkeley and she's there to do the study and so forth. But Sabrin, the kind of questions that she was asking was a very basic. And then I was thinking, I mean, how could you do not know about this basic information before even putting yourself into trouble to come to the country? And somehow it uh, felt, I mean, she felt that she know way better than me. She have all of the resources. I just, and to me was very surreal, very stupid. And then I was thinking, and then we were, as, as we were just went through the discussion, I said, you know what, this is happening in Iran. I do believe that you need to talk to this person. And you, I, I do believe that you, if you, I mean, it was about women's issues, women's movement and so forth. And really got me thinking about the exact uh, comment I made a few to a few seconds ago, a white supremacy. She felt that she had all the answers. And I felt um, so weak. I'm thinking probably it's the same attitude. Of course, it's very important of the peace builder and peace uh, keeper because uh, I enjoy the book and I enjoy your approach. And throughout the conversation, you are making absolutely amazing comments but wouldn't you think how wouldn't you think that it's something wrong with how we view how we view conflict and how we view other nations and 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 is there any hope to make it right so yeah that's exactly what i'm saying in the book is that there is this this assumption that outsiders know best and that local people do not have what it takes to build peace and that's completely 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 wrong and that's why i wrote an entire book to show that it's the opposite is the case that you know we everywhere we are in the world uh Insiders, so people who live within the community, within the conflict, they have a lot of relevant knowledge, skills, networks, expertise. Sabrine, so but why the government? So these people are going to those nations uh, funded by the government, funded, funded by the politicians. Why governments are reluctant to understand that? Is this because they, they want to exploit the nation? Is it because they want to? What, what is the reason? So uh, it, you would need like five different books to, to look at that. <laughs> uh, maybe that's going to be our five next books, right? Uh, but to, to me, it's not. I mean, of course, at, at times there is a, like a willful uh, ignorance or, 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 or like a willingness not to see what's happening. But I think that, that usually even for governments and 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 for individuals that are really well-meaning it's it's really the matter the way we view the world the way we view knowledge and what matters the way we're trained to think and we're trained to think about thematic what i call thematic expertise like expertise in gender and human rights in election organizations as being more important than the knowledge of local conditions around us. And, and what I show in the book is that no, both of them are extremely important if we want to build peace. 
Yes, yes. You just explained something that, that I think is monumental. I just wrote it that trained. We, 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 we are trained to think in such way. We are trained. So here is a very quick anecdote I'm going to give you, and it's according to research. Since 1967 onward, at least the research goes back until 1967. I know that it's way, way, um, there are older than 1967. But you look at New York Times, and you look at the word section and you read any story about non-European, non-American, Anglo-Saxon countries and almost with no exception, the last paragraph of every story ends with negative connotations. And that is mind-blowing to me because in the U.S. or in, in European nations, we are not trained to think otherwise. Yeah, and and we're not trained to like when when I started saying we because you you remember in the book I'm saying that we have a lot to learn uh, we people who live in the United States have a lot to learn from inhabitants of conflict zones and from Congolese people etc on how to build peace how to build better communities and when I started talking about this idea people were looking at me like. I like what are you coming with? What's what's this idea? But I want also to Yes, very quickly. As I explained many times, we are talking from our houses and offices. There are oftentimes sounds that is out of our control. So the, the only thing to go around with that is to just I mean be patient. Okay, Sabrina, you, you were saying so that was an ambulance passing by. Yes, yes, um, uh, yes. And it's, it's gone on its way to the hospital now, thankfully. Um, so so I, I wanted to, to go back on the idea of white supremacy that you were discussing. And uh, to me, what I develop in the book and the lessons I've learned through my research are very close to what I read on how to be a good ally to communities of color in the United States and how to help as a white person dismantle white supremacy or help dispendals white supremacy and it's the idea of like as a white person don't put yourself forward uh don't think that you know better don't think that you have the right theory the right skills the right expertise that you can like do everything yourself but instead like listen listen to people who are affected by the problems follow their leads uh, make sure that you follow you don't lead that you that you respect they're, what, what they're telling you and that you really listen rather than, than just hearing, that you listen to what they have to say. And to me, that's the kind of advice that is as relevant when you're going to a conflict zone in, in Congo or in Colombia or in Israel and the Palestinian territories, as it is relevant uh, when you're thinking about decreasing violence within our own communities in the United States. And, and when we look at the, the organizations uh, that actually manage to have a positive impact on the ground and to really make the situation better within communities. Well, in the United States, these are organizations that follow these principles like cure violence, live free, mothers, men against senseless killings. I mean, I, I could go on and on. All of these organizations that don't put themselves forward, but that really rely on the leadership of the people affected by the problems. Excellent. The front lines of peace and insiders guide to changing the world is the name of the book. And speaking of following, you can follow Severine. Okay, so I do have it here. Severine A R A. 
S-E-V-E-R-I-N-E-A-R-A on Twitter. And she's also active on Instagram. Goodreads are the best place to find Sabrina. Stay put with me. Welcome again to Peace Mindedly, the podcast showcasing some of the finest peaceful bridge makers in the world. We're live streaming on YouTube. Uh, please find us under Peace Talk with Sarah is the name of our YouTube. And do check us out on goldtone.com. For this hour, we talk with Sevrin Atesere, author of The Frontlines of Peace and Insider's Guide to Changing the World. In fact, Sevrin is an insider uh, to peace building. She has spent a great, I mean, as, as you're, you are listening to our conversation, she knows a great deal about what takes place and what should what do we need to do to to bring peace or to sustain peace within uh, within the uh, the communities and she spent 7 years to write the book front lines of peace about such matter so i do recommend the book you can find the book on goldtoon.com and also on her website sabrinaatsere.com in her website there are wealth of information and resources about congo about the book about her um, activism about her scholarship and lots of information that you can learn and enjoy you know the deal for our show at the end of every program we ask our guests to share a story a statement a prayer passage from the book anything something meaningful about peace about kindness and compassion and i'm going to leave it to sabrine to share with us uh, what she would like to share with us about peace kindness and compassion Okay, so I'm going to tell you about the three things that most surprised me when I was researching the front lines of peace. And, and the three things that I found that to me are still mind-blowing. The first one is that there are pockets of peace even in the middle of the most violent war zones. I didn't think that I would find them, but I did. I, I, I found we've talked about Ijwi, the island of Ijwi in Congo. We haven't talked much about Somaliland, this autonomous region in the north of Somalia. Uh, but there is Somaliland, there is a village in Israel and the Palestinian territories that has been founded just to show that Israeli and Palestinian people can live in peace together. So first thing, there are pockets of peace even in the midst of the most violent war zones. The second thing is that ordinary individuals have a lot more power than we believe, usually, to decrease violence. And again, we've talked about that a lot during the show today. And the third point is that there is an, an alternative to the current way we build peace. And we've talked about this alternative, and I, I talk about it extensively in my book. And this alternative way we build peace, to build peace works much better than the standard approach and it can help us not only end violence in war zones around the world but also decrease violence around us in our own communities. And we can learn about all of those on the front lines of peace and insider's guide to changing the world. Okay, I'm bringing Mateen to our studio. Thank you very much. We learned a great deal. Uh, we do Probably. recommend the book and and uh, find the book on goldtoon.com, on sevrinatesere.com and many other places. Thank you. Khoda Hafiz. Martin, did you want to say anything? I just wanted to thank Sevrin. It was great to talk. 
Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me on your show and, and thank you for the wonderful discussion today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you.